I remembered what it was that I was supposed to say. These lovely poinsettias here are provided to us by our church gardener. She waters them faithfully. After today, she quits. So take them home. At the end of the service, if you would like to have one of these poinsettias, please uh, feel free to do that. Take them to your home and care for them. One year, I promise that if you bring them back still blooming at Easter, you'll win a prize. Uh, my daughter tried, and it failed. So, uh, but if you want to, you're more than welcome to do that. I don't think that today uh, I'm going to tell you many things this morning that you don't already know, which is a really bad way to start a sermon. Um, someone, <laughs> I say that, I'm not going to tell you anything that you don't already know, and somebody is already thinking to themselves, good, close in prayer, let's go home. Um, but I imagine uh, that most of you celebrated Christmas uh, this week, something you've probably done before at least once, and uh, if you've celebrated it before, you, you, and you probably didn't knew anything that was too new or too unfamiliar, I wonder why you did it again. You've done it before. Everything that you did, probably, you've, you've done it before. Why did you do it ag- again? Probably uh, for the reason similar why on uh, February 14th you will go and buy your sweetheart a card or why you might wear green on March 17th, or why you might go see fireworks at the beginning of July, or why every year on the date you were born, you hope to at some point in time during the day eat cake and blow out candles. Why do you do all those things over and over and over again? What's, what's the point? What, why do you celebrate those holidays? What are they supposed to do for you? I want to answer some of those questions by thinking with you this morning about Israel's holidays, the holidays that God established for his people. They're described in several places in the Bible, but the place where they are most comprehensively listed is in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23. So if you haven't already, I hope you take your Bibles and turn with me to Leviticus, chapter 23. This is, is it not a holiday week, and we're going to talk about holidays Not the ones that we celebrate, but the ones that God himself established for the nation of Israel. Um, Leviticus 23, as I said, is the most systematic treatment of Israel's holidays. And uh, they're consistently called the Lord's festivals. And they're from God. And I have a confession to make to you about them. I find them incredibly confusing. I have a terrible time keeping them straight and remembering when they are and what they're supposed to celebrate and what they're supposed to be about. Um, I I struggle for a number of reasons. Maybe you struggle too, and here's some of the reasons why. These holidays don't have fixed dates. The uh, Israel calendar here in, in the Bible is the lunar calendar. We operate according to a solar calendar. So these holidays, they don't have fixed dates. I can remember December 25th and July 4th and March 17th and February 14th. But these dates, they just move all over the place. Another reason why I struggle, I think, with these holidays is because for the first 10 years of my life, I had a King James version of the Bible. And all of these, these uh, uh, festivals have different names, many of them, between the King James and the NIV that I switched to when I was 10 or 11 years old. And then even they have different modern Hebrew names. For example, the Feast of Booths is also called the Feast of Tabernacles, and neither of them actually involve literal booths or literal tabernacles. 
Actually, the Hebrew name for the Feast of Booths, which we're going to talk about, Lord willing, next week is Sukkot. And I don't know if you know this, but there is in Lancaster County a huge movement to make Lancaster County a a destination for Orthodox Jews celebrating Sukkot. In fact, if you want to, Google Lancaster and Sukkot, and you will find websites that will direct you to all kinds of uh, the hotels that serve kosher food and and all kinds of ways that you can celebrate uh, Sukkot in the fall. Uh, We'll talk about that more next week a little bit. I get confused with these holidays sometimes between celebrate what they celebrate, sometimes the, the modern Jewish practices, which actually date to the Middle Ages, and, and the ancient biblical practices. They're, they're not the same, and the Bible isn't as specific as we might want. So I get confused there. Sometimes, sometimes I get lost because there are holidays that are celebrated that aren't mentioned actually in this passage of Scripture Like Purim, Purim doesn't come until the book of of Esther. And Hanukkah, that's the Jewish holiday most of us are probably the most familiar with. Hanukkah, which was actually a minor Jewish holiday until retailers needed to find a way to balance Christmas. Um, Hanukkah comes from the, the place in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It dates to that period of time. Jesus celebrated Hanukkah, John chapter 10. Except it's not called Hanukkah in John 10. It's called the Festival of Dedication. I get confused with these. I, I suppose my confusion shouldn't be that surprising. Uh, imagine trying to explain American holidays to foreigners. Um, there are major holidays in which everything closes, like Christmas and Thanksgiving and the 4th of July and Memorial Day. Then there are lesser holidays where most schools, not all, but most schools are closed and banks and governments and you don't get postal uh, mail. But, but most businesses are open, like Martin Luther King Jr. Day and President's Day. There are holidays that aren't really official holidays, but most people celebrate them in some way. Halloween, for example, or uh, Valentine's Day. And then try to explain to someone what the holidays are about. How how does Santa Claus relate to Jesus? And then then try to explain to someone why we sing about a snowman coming to life at Christmas and what that has to do with the celebration of the holiday. I read a study not too long ago that said that many internationals, uh, non-Western foreigners, think that Christmas Day is the celebration of the birthday of Santa Claus. Um, And is Thanksgiving for eating, for football, or for shopping? And if it's for eating, football, or shopping, one of the three, why is it called Thanksgiving? And why in the north on New Year's Day do we eat pork and sauerkraut, but in the south on New Year's Eve you eat black-eyed peas? I suppose it's not surprising that I find these holidays confusing. Our own holidays are confusing enough. Well, what I want to do, my goal over these next couple of weeks with you is I want to try to help you uh, get a, some clarity on these celebrations. For a few minutes, perhaps, I'm going to be playing the role more of Bible teacher than preacher. Um, that's okay. I want to give you some clarity on these, and then I want to think with you about why God commanded these festivals to be celebrated. What did he have in mind when he called the Israelites to do them? And then, actually, I want to look more specifically for a few minutes at the spring festivals, the ones that that, uh, come around March or uh, April.
Now, I included in your bulletin this morning uh, that blue sheet, and on it there should be a chart there of the festivals, of the holidays. Uh, and if you want to get that out, I'm going to talk about that just for a few minutes, these festivals in general. There are seven of them, seven of them listed in Leviticus 23. As I said, Purim and Hanukkah are not here because they come later, but in Leviticus 23, here they are. Passover, unleavened bread, the first fruits the Festival of Weeks, the Festival of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Festival of Tabernacles. Uh, four of them happen in the springtime. The first four, Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, and Weeks, or uh, we know that more as, as Pentecost. And the other three all happen within uh, about three weeks of each other. The Festival of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Festival of Tabernacles, or Booths. Um, there are three of them that are pilgrim festivals. That is, they lasted one week. Those are the ones that are in italics. They're pilgrimage festivals, and they last one week. The, the Bible called all Jewish men um, three times a year to go to the tabernacle to worship. They would um, find where the tabernacle was, and they would go there. And, and eventually, as the New Testament unfolds, of course, it's the temple in Jerusalem that they are going to. Now, which explains why... New Testament events happen the way they do. Why Jesus, when he was crucified in Passover, why the city was crowded? Because people had come to the city for the festival of unleavened bread, which was very close to that. And why during Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came in the book of Acts, um, why the city was crowded with, with uh, Jewish men and women from all over the world. Those were pilgrimage festivals. The other festivals uh, were day-long events. Uh, you could go to Jerusalem. It was encouraged for you to be in Jerusalem for the Festival of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement, but it wasn't required by the law. And Passover, in particular, was a family celebration that you were to have with your family. Now, I imagine that not everybody was able to travel to Jerusalem for these festivals to the temple. Uh, there were, I'm sure were, there were pregnancies, there were illnesses, there were problems with aging. But in general, that, that's what, what people did. You can also distinguish these, these festivals from each other by the amount of rest or the level of rest that was required on them. Um, the Sabbath, we talked about this last week, the Sabbath was a day for total rest. There was to be no work done on the Sabbath. That included no food preparation. So you eat cold on the Sabbath. And you also do that on Passover and you do it on the Day of Atonement. The other, sacrifice, or the other festivals have varying amounts of rest. There was food preparation involved in some of them, so um, there would be partial rest on parts of those week-long celebrations. And then, of course, you can also evaluate them or, or distinguish them uh, based on, on the, the season, the agricultural calendar. This festival calendar is based on the, the uh, harvest seasons. So Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits are celebrated during the barley harvest, and uh, the festival of weeks comes during the wheat harvest, and then the last three come during the harvest of grapes, figs, and olives, which will be important next week. We'll talk about how that uh, contributed to the, to the celebration. Now, those are the uh, festivals just in, in general I gave them. I, I want to look specifically at the spring festivals, and we're going to look in our Bibles right now, uh, four of them. We're going to start by thinking about Passover. Take your Bibles and turn to me, well, if you're already there, Leviticus 23, verse 4. 
Now we're going to talk about Passover here for just a moment. These are the Lord's appointed festivals, the sacred assemblies, verse 4 says, you are to proclaim at their appointed times. The Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. On the 15th day of that month, the Lord's festival of unleavened bread begins. For seven days you must eat bread made without yeast. Now think about this with me here. So Passover is on the 14th day. The festival of unleavened bread begins on the 15th day. So most Jews, uh, most Israelites would think about those things as going together, those two festivals, like Christmas Eve and Christmas, or New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. There's Passover, and then the next day, the festival of unleavened bread begins. And those two things both commemorate the same thing. This was a commemoration of God's rescuing of the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt. We'll talk about that more in, in just a minute. Now, uh, the nation of Israel, the people existed before this day. Um, Abraham's family had multiplied to this nation. They existed, but their independence day, this is what they mark as their July 4th, 1776. There were colonists, of course, in America before that, who became members of the United States or citizens of the United States, but, but that was... July 4th is our Independence Day, and this is their Independence Day. Now, verse 7 is where I started. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. For seven days, present a food offering to the Lord, and on the seventh day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. Okay? Days 1 and 7 of this week-long celebration are for worship at the tabernacle. Now, let's move on here to uh, uh, first fruits. First fruits. Remember, this happens during the barley harvest. So here, here's what it says. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land, I'm going to give you and you reap its harvest. Bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain you harvest. He is to wave the sheaf before the Lord so it will be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. On the day you wave the sheaf, you must sacrifice as a burnt offering to the Lord, a lamb a year old without defect, together with its grain offering of two-tenths of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with olive oil, a food offering presented to the Lord, a pleasing aroma, and its drink offering of a quarter of a hint of wine. You must not eat any bread or roasted or new grain until the very day you bring this offering to your God. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. Now, what would happen is they would celebrate Passover on the 14th day. The Feast of Unleavened Bread on the 15th day would begin. And sometime in that week would be first fruits. All three of these go together within that, that short period of time. And first fruits was really just a sacrifice. It wasn't a festival. It was a, a special sacrifice that was made where they would bring in a sheaf of barley and they would wave it before the Lord, before his presence in the tabernacle. And it was a way to acknowledge two things. One, that God had provided for them. We brought this out of the field, God, but we acknowledge that you are the one who grows the crops. You're the one who provides for us. In many ways, it was, it was Thanksgiving. You wave it before the Lord to acknowledge, first of all, that, that God, they came from God and in anticipation of the rest of the harvest that is to come. God, you gave us this first bounty and more of it is still to be collected in the fields. And we, we thank you for your, your kindness. Now, I want to show you something that I think is, is very interesting uh, and it will help you see how the Bible is put together. 
Look with me again here at verse 11. The priest, he is to wave the sheaf before the Lord so it will be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. Okay, follow me here. The day after the Sabbath. Now, does the word Sabbath there refer to the first day of unleavened bread, that Sabbath rest day? Or does it refer to the Sabbath within the week of unleavened bread? Well, let me explain what I mean. Let's imagine here that Passover is on Wednesday, and then Thursday then would be the first day of the Festival of Unleavened Bread. So that's a day of rest. It's a day of Sabbath rest. Is the Sabbath that verse 11 is talking about the, that Sabbath? So then you offer the sacrifice, the first fruit sacrifice the next day, which would be Friday. Oh, three-day weekend, right? Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Or... Are you supposed to offer it on the day after the Sabbath in that week, in which case you'd offer it on Sunday? Well, I'll tell you the answer to that question. Nobody living and human knows. Rabbis have argued about this for hundreds of years. When's the first fruit sacrifice to be offered? Now, well, I'll tell you why it matters. This is, this is exciting. Um, it will be in a minute. Sometimes, sometimes, what would happen is Passover would be on Friday. Then the Feast of Unleavened Bread would begin on Saturday. Now, if that happened, that would be a double Sabbath, right? It would be the normal Sabbath, and it would be the first day of the festival, which was also a Sabbath. They called those days high Sabbaths because you really had to rest. It was a regular Sabbath rest, and it was a holiday Sabbath rest. Then the next day, Sunday, without a doubt, is the day that you're supposed to offer the first fruit sacrifice. There's the three-day weekend right there. It happened once, at least, that we know of. A very significant time. Do you remember the Lord Jesus was crucified on Passover, which was on a Friday? Saturday would be the festival of unleavened bread. It would start, and Sunday would be the day that they would offer first fruit sacrifice. Look with me. The Apostle Paul pointed this out. It's, it's written in your blue sheet there at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Look at what Paul is doing here. Christ indeed has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Uh, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Follow me. Think about what was happening in Israel when the Lord Jesus was crucified. Friday was Passover. He died. Saturday was the festival of unleavened bread. First day of it. Sunday, first fruit sacrifice. The day the Lord Jesus came up out of the tomb is the day that the high priest is walking into the temple with that sacrifice to wave, saying, God, you have given us this barley harvest and we thank you for it. And we, give it, we offer it, we wave it to you in anticipation of the fact that there is more to come, much more to come. And the Apostle Paul is, is pointing this out historically. Jesus was raised on First Fruits Day. Historically, that's what happened. But theologically, that's what happens too. Jesus is the first of many to come. He's the first of those who will be resurrected. And we anticipate, when we go to cemeteries, we put bodies in the ground in anticipation of the fact that someday they're going to come out of the ground. Jesus, the first fruits, and the harvest. The harvest of resurrection is to come. 
Now, that's first fruits. Now, let, let's go on here next to the, the festival of weeks, or sometimes it's called the festival of uh, Pentecost. The, the first three are all bunched together the same. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, they all fit within the same week. Fifty days later is the festival of Pentecost. Look, look with me here at Leviticus chapter 23, uh, verse number 15. From the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, count off seven full weeks. That's why this festival is sometimes called weeks. Count off 50 days. That's why it's sometimes called Pentecost. You know, Pentagon is five, a five-sided figure. Pentecost is 50. That's where that name comes from. Count off 50 days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. This is a wheat offering. From wherever you live, bring two loaves made of two-tenths of an ephah of the finest flour baked with yeast. This is the only time you can offer yeasty bread. As a wave offering of first fruits to the Lord, present with this bread seven male lambs, each a year old and without defect, one young bull and two rams. They will be a burnt offering to the Lord together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, a food offering and aroma pleasing to the Lord. Then sacrifice one male goat for a sin offering and two lambs, each a year old, for a fellowship offering. Now, what's significant about this is this, this is lavish sacrifice. This is a, a significant Big sacrifice. Why? Because the harvest has come in and there's abundance. And this is a giving thanks to God for the abundance that is, that is here. The priest is to wave the two lambs before the Lord as a wave offering together with the bread of the first fruits. They are a sac- sacred offering to the Lord for the priest. Now, uh, well, I keep going. On the same day, you are to proclaim a sacred assembly and do no regular work. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. And verse 22 has this important reminder. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings from your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord. These are three, uh, excuse me, those are four of the first festivals. All happened in the spring. We have three more to go, and we're going to save them, Lord willing, for next week. But I want to think with you for a minute about the question of why. Why did God command them to follow this schedule? Why these sacrifices? Why these festivals? Alan Ross lists several reasons in his great commentary on Leviticus. I just want to summarize them into the list of three three reasons why these are important. First of all, marking these holidays acknowledged God's rule. It acknowledged God's rule. He rules over time. He rules over seasons. He rules over nature. Time belongs to God and he has the right to order it. And into time, he put seasons of work and seasons of rest. After the harvest, man and beast are to rest before plowing and planting begins again. Some of you have occupations like that that are, that are very seasonal. Um, t- teachers, in some way, they work during the school year, and in theory, they're supposed to rest a little bit over the summer, except for their second job or their graduate degree. But that's the idea. And then uh, farmers and landscapers and pavers, they, they uh, have the opposite. They work more and longer during the summer, and, and maybe a little bit less in the winter. God wove these seasons into uh, uh, creation itself. It, it's okay. 
if your alarm clock goes off a little bit later this month, it's okay. If, if you quit a little bit early, it, it, it's okay. Don't, don't feel guilty about that. God wove this into creation itself. We acknowledge God's rule, or they acknowledge God's rule by honoring him as the provider. You, God, are the one who gives the grain, you grow the crops in the field, and you're, you're worshipped and honored as, as the provider for us. Now, second, marking these holidays also, it acknowledged God's rules. Secondly, it invigorated the Israelites' faith. It invigorated the Israelites' faith. This is what these large gatherings were for. Um, it's what they were supposed to do. Three times a year, the Israelite men, uh, any man who was able, was to gather in particular in Jerusalem, and they worshipped and they were surrounded by hundreds of thousands of other men and women and children who shared their faith, who shared their commitment to Yahweh, and it was supposed to strengthen their commitment. You're not alone in this. There's lots of us who worship Yahweh God. Uh, there's eight men and women in our church uh, this morning who are in Kentucky at a large conference uh, for young adults focused on missions. Um, there's no New Testament demand to have gatherings like that. There's no New Testament command for that. But you've been to conferences like this. Or you've been to large meetings like this, haven't you? It's, it's, it's invigorating. It's encouraging to gather with two or 3,000 other believers and, and sing and listen to God's word and hear them affirm what's preached and pro- proclaimed. Uh, this is community identi- identity formation, and God commands it of the Israelites. It's a large, I think, it's what the church is supposed to do every week when we gather together. Uh, we meet together to remind one another. You, you might not see the other people here. In fact, you, you probably don't see most of the other people that are here on Sundays uh, during the week. But we get together on Sunday and we say to one another, we all believe in Jesus. We are all committed to him. We are all following him. Don't quit. The invigoration of faith that's supposed to come when God's people gather together. Now, here's a third reason for marking these holidays. It embedded values within the people. It embedded values within the people. There are certain ideals and patterns that were specifically marked on these days that are supposed to embed themselves in the thinking and in the, the patterns of the people. They were supposed to, there were specific times for rest and celebration and specific days for repentance and reflection. And they were supposed to be repenting, reflecting, resting people all through the year. And these days were to embed those values in the people. You're familiar with this, right? Thanksgiving comes along. And what do we say to one another? Oh, it's Thanksgiving, the day for thanks. I really should be thankful the rest of the year too. Yeah, you should, right? That's, that's what these holidays are. They're embedding these values in the people. Which leads me, I think, to our, our final, time to, uh, 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 final part of our time together in God's Word. We, we talked about the holidays in general. We talked about four of them in specific. And, and now what I want to do is I want to focus on these values in particular that are associated with Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, and, and Pentecost. Um, there, there's two of them that, that I want to consider with you. Here, here's the first one. Rescue leads to a changed life. Rescue leads to a changed life. I think that's what Passover and unleavened bread are supposed to embed in God's people as, as we read this passage. Passover is about rescue, isn't it? 
It's a familiar story. It, it, it bears repeating. This generation that Moses first gave the book of Leviticus to were, were in Egypt. This generation was there. They were in slavery. They had come down. There were 70 of them. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, had led them down from the promised land down to Egypt. And, and they were there. And when they, when they first went there, they were separated into a, 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 an area called Goshen. Within time, they multiplied and multiplied. And, and the Egyptians enslaved them. There they were in slavery. They called out to God, rescue us, rescue us, rescue us from slavery. How is God going to rescue them? What's he going to do? To free them from the Egyptians. How, how do you enslaved, freed, uh, how do you free enslaved people? Well, God did it through the plagues, a series of plagues that increased in intensity. And the tenth one was the worst. God uh, was going to send an angel throughout Egypt in one night and he would kill the firstborn son in every home. But God provided a way out for the Israelites. This is what he told them to do. Each family was to slaughter a lamb and paint the blood. This must have been a gruesome thing. Can you imagine this? To gather enough blood to paint it on on your door. It's not an insignificant amount. You paint the blood at the top of the door and on the doorpost. And then you go inside, your whole family, you gather inside your home. And when the angel of death that night went through Egypt, uh, what was he to do? What was the angel of death to do when he saw the blood? He was supposed to see the blood and recognize a death has already taken place in this home. Blood has already been shed. Someone has already died in this home. You can pass over this home and go to the next because someone already has died. It was a substitute. It was the lamb that died, not the firstborn son. But, but the death has already taken place. And after that, the Egyptians begged the Israelites to leave. Please leave. God rescued them from slavery. It's not difficult to see the connections that the Apostle Paul draws. We are slaves in our natural condition. Not slaves to a foreign power, but slaves to sin. And we are worthy of death. Worthy of God's judgment. But Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb whose blood is shed on the cross. And and all who believe are covered with the blood. The Bible tells us that God looks at the world in in a number of ways, his stances. He looks at the world in love. He looks in the world in justice and righteousness. If God were to look at the world in pure righteousness, pure justice, all those who are followers of Jesus Christ... We're like everybody else in deserving God's wrath. But if you are trusting in what Christ has done, you have over you a sign that says death has already taken place. Punishment has already been brought. It's already been lowered, leveled against this person. It's a substitute. But death has already occurred. That's what Passover is supposed to do. We celebrate this sacrifice every time we mark the Lord's Supper. We mark this sacrifice. We, we celebrate it. Now that's the rescue. The Feast of Unleavened Bread points us toward the changed life. Very soon as the Old Testament unfolds, what you'll see is that leaven becomes a symbol for sin. Um, it, it's most clear in, in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 7 through 8. Look what it says. Um, Paul writes this here. Get rid of the old yeast. 
so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. You're supposed to be an unleavened batch. For Christ, oh, Paul's been reading Leviticus. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival. Which festival? The festival of unleavened bread. How do we keep the festival of unleavened bread? Not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So you and I, brothers and sisters, are supposed to keep the festival of unleavened bread. How do we do it? Not by eating matzah, but by a changed life, by a life marked by sincerity and truth. Rescue leads to a changed life. When we gather together as as brothers and sisters on Sunday morning, we have two themes that we want to communicate to one another. One, we want to celebrate again our rescue through the Lord Jesus. He's come. He's God. He's king and sacrifice. And the second thing we want to do is challenge one another to lead these new lives. Celebrate what Christ has done, the rescue, and challenge one another to lead new lives. And to do so, you have to avoid two errors. If we forget this call to lead new lives, we will be people who are in constant, constant uh, cycles of guilt, grief, and uh, uh, then rejoicing. Oh, I'm such a terrible sinner. Christ died for me. Woohoo! I'm a terrible sinner. I'm weeping. Christ died for me. Woohoo! This constant cycle. If we forget this call to lead a new life. If we forget the fact that Christ has died for us, we won't be in this cycle of grief. We'll be in this cycle of, of blaming one another, of guilting one another, of legalizing one another. And don't you know, shouldn't you, you should be a better person than that. You need, you need to knock that off. We become nags and bullies of one another. The Lord has rescued us. And by his rescue, he undoes all of the reasons, all of the things that lead us into this this unchanged, guilt-driven life. So we celebrate both of those things. He's come to rescue us. And because of that, he calls us out of darkness into his light. My children saw the movie version not too long ago of the musical Annie. They've been singing the music. Um, one of them said, I, I said, where did you hear that? Oh, Grandma and Grandpa showed us the movie. Oh, he's, he, you know which one it was. He said, that's why I'm all into it now. <laughs> all into Annie. Um, there's a scene, I'm, I'm sure I have mentioned this to you before. Um, uh, Orphan Annie, was, she's brought to the Warbucks home and she's given the grand tour. She sees everything. She sees the pool. She sees the bedroom. She sees the tennis courts, the grand entryway. And they, they ask her, all the, the staff, they gather around her and they ask, what do you want to do first, Annie, now that you're here in this house? What do you want to do first? And she walks over to a bucket and she picks up this rag and she says, well, I think I want to start with the windows. And then if I spill anything, I can get it when I do the floors. And they laugh at her. Annie, (laughs) you're not a servant come, a a slave in this house. We've rescued you, and your life is going to be completely different. That's what we celebrate when we gather together. Those who've been rescued from sin through the Lord Jesus are rescued from its penalty and from its power. And every time we gather, uh, we, we hear again about the Lord Jesus and how life in him is brand new. 
Here's, here's one way, actually, that, it, that it's new. This is a second value that these four holidays are to embed in God's people. Here, here's the second thing. Gratitude leads to generosity. Gratitude leads to generosity. Here's one of the new things about life. This is the connection between the festival of weeks and leaving the crops in, in the field. Because God has provided and the harvest has come in and there's crops aplenty, what do we do? We leave some in the field for the poor to go and get. They can go get. We can be generous because God has given to us. Because God has provided, we can provide for others. He he frees us. Gratitude, real gratitude that recognizes God's provision is always generous. That's one of the ways that you can tell that your gratitude is real. If it's generous or not. Now, generosity doesn't always indicate gratitude. Sometimes people are generous because they're just tired of spending money on themselves. They want a diversion. I'll spend my money on somebody else. So generosity doesn't always indicate gratitude. But gratitude always results in generosity. It's a sure sign of someone who's been blessed and who knows it. If your focus is solely on how you have earned everything... I'm not trying to de-emphasize the value of work, but if all you see is your earning and your labor and what you have done, you will not, you'll not give to others. Generosity is the overflow of, of blessing. So Jesus was talking about when he talked about forgiveness. Anybody who has been forgiven much, you, you should forgive others. Generosity is the, is the, the, the overflow of, of blessing. Lee Strobel was a reporter for the Chicago Tribune, and he did a series uh, once about uh, uh, impoverished families that were living in downtown Chicago. He did it during the Christmas season. Um, This is what he wrote about one family that stuck out in his mind. The Delgados, 60-year-old Perfecta and her granddaughters, Lydia and Jenny, had been burned out of their roach-infested tenement and were now living in a tiny two-bedroom apartment on the west side. As I walked into their apartment, I couldn't believe how empty it was. There was no furniture, no rugs, nothing on the walls, only a small kitchen table and one handful of rice. That's it. They were virtually devoid of possessions. In fact, 11-year-old Lydia and 13-year-old Jenny owned only one short-sleeved dress each, plus one thin gray sweater between them. When they walked the half mile to school through the biting cold, Lydia would wear the sweater for part of the distance and then hand it to her shivering sister who would wear it the rest of the way. But despite their poverty and the painful arthritis that kept Perfecta from working, she still talked confidently about her faith in Jesus. She was convinced he had not abandoned them. I never sensed despair or self-pity in her home. Instead, there was a gentle feeling of hope and peace. Lee Strobel wrote this. He was not a follower of Christ at the time. He was very intrigued by this woman and her granddaughters, but you know the newspapers have to be printed every day. He moved on to other stories. On Christmas Eve, though, he decided to go visit them again. And when he walked in their house, their apartment, he was shocked because newspaper readers had read what he'd written and showered this family with, with, with gifts. There was new furniture, appliances, rugs, uh, a Christmas tree, unwrapped presents everywhere, bags of food, um, warm winter clothing, cash. People had given them just cash. And, and this is what Strobel said. What, as surprised as I was by this outpouring, I was even more astonished by what my visit was interrupting. Perfecta and her granddaughters were getting ready to give away much of their newfound wealth. 
When I asked Perfecta why, she replied in halting English, our neighbors are still in need. We cannot have plenty while they have nothing. This is what Jesus would want us to do. Gratitude leads to generosity. It is the overflow of being blessed. I wonder if your life is marked that way. If your generosity comes from gratitude. This is January 1st. It's a new year. It's going to begin this week, right? Uh, There's a sense of freshness. I'm not sure what it is, but there's something very pleasing about turning over that calendar or hanging up the new one. Or um, learning to write the new date on your checks when when you write checks. I, I can't explain the tangibility of that, but isn't there a sense of freshness? Don't you feel a little bit of buoyancy here as you go in? I'm going to start again. This is the year that I'm going to, and you're thinking about it. You, you don't say it because no one keeps their resolutions, but isn't this the year you're going to... This, 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 this buoyancy... Um, Because of God's rescue, because of his kindness, it provides this buoyancy that changes lives and inculcates generosity into us every day.